Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the prophet Micah. Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. I named two of my three boys, Micah and Isaiah. And uh, Micah simply means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like God? And that really is a great question for us this morning uh, as we consider this longer message. It will be more, more like Amos than it will be like Jonah or, or even Hosea. And uh, this is the question that Micah asks us. In Luke 24, Jesus gives us an interpretational clue to the Old Testament. He says this, then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So we must see in the Old Testament, we must see in the prophets, we must see in the minor prophets, Jesus Christ. We must look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. As we read Micah's, we're not going to read the entire letter, but we're going to do an overview of it. As we look into Micah's prophecy, I want us to ask four questions. First of all, what do we learn about God? A lot of Preaching today presents God as soft, as weak, as a celestial Santa Claus who's distant from our sin but close when we need a gift. And what we're going to see in Micah is God's character is not wet cement. It's not forming. And it's going to be a fearful look. It's going to be disturbing. And Micah is going to go back and forth between doom and judgment and the fierceness of God, and that pendulum is always going to swing back to hope. And we need that after a fierce picture of who God really is. We need to be reminded there is always hope. Secondly, does Micah's prophecy have a sense of expectation about something happening in the future? And if so, how should this motivate action in the present? Third, does the passage point forward to Jesus in any way? Remember the interpretational clue. Beginning at Moses and all the scriptures, right? The law and the prophets and the Psalms. He expounded to them things concerning himself. He's there. He's in there. So how does this book point forward to Jesus? And is the gospel anticipated or foreshadowed in some way? And then finally, what we do with all of scripture, what response is called for? So here's what I'd like to do as a church. And this, we should already be doing this. But anytime we come to God's word and we see something that God reveals about himself or reveals about the gospel or reveals about us, that we simply respond. We don't need a, a formal come forward, bow down, but at that moment in your seat, respond. God's word says something, your heart should resound, yes. 
If he says something displeases him and he wants you to give it up, you should say yes. If he reveals something that is disturbing, that goes against your your cultural God, but he reveals something that is very true of himself, then simply submit to that truth. Here's the context. Micah lived in a small town called Morasheth. Some call it Morasheth of Gath in the western lowlands of Judah, which indicated he probably had a rustic background. We would call him a country boy, maybe a backwoods preacher. And this farm boy who's not part of the urban elite is now called to go into the towns and the big cities, the capital city of the north. The kingdoms have already divided. Samaria is the capital of the north. That's Israel. Jerusalem is capital of the south. That's Judah. And Micah, this farm boy, is called to go to the urban elite and confront them about their sin. Micah, who probably lived among the marginalized and oppressed, who saw the wickedness and the oppression of the big city people, is now going into those places to denounce their sin. This is what Micah thought of himself. Look at Micah chapter 3, verse 8. This is what he knew to be true of himself as he sent from Morasheth into these cities. Micah 3, verse 8. But as for me... I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. That's Micah's mission. God has set him apart to do that. The structure so we can follow it because we're not going to be able to look at it all this morning really has three cycles or we might say three sections and, the, and, and each section is divided by or introduced by the word here. So he's going to call attention. This is very similar to what Jesus would say. Remember this. You who have ears to hear, let them what? Let them hear. So Mike is going to say, now hear this. He's proclaiming a message. And then he's going to go down to chapter 3, verse 1. Hear the next cycle. And then the third cycle, hear. Hear you peoples, all of you. 3-1, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. 6-1, hear what the Lord says. And each of these three cycles is filled with judgment, accusation, warning, and then it always leads to what? Hope. So as you're reading through this, Micah is going to just switch back and forth from judgment, accusation, warning to hope. Judgment to hope. And you're wondering, what is the message he's trying to bring? And it seems like what Micah wants to make big in our minds. And he's going to be very explicit with these people's sins. Is that no matter what doom is proclaimed, there's always hope. No matter how dark your sins have become. And these people are dark and dripping in sin. And God has taken notice there's still hope. The first section, most of that section is Micah denouncing the sin. So we're going to call that long judgment. Then he's going to end that first section with just a short section of hope. The second section is short judgment. He only takes a a brief amount of time to denounce them, but then he expounds on this long section of hope in the future. And then the third section, similar to the first, is a long judgment In short hope. Look at chapter 1 verse 2. This is the beginning of cycle 
1. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. He's using language, legal language. We would say he's borrowing language from a courtroom. And then cycle three, look at chapter six, verse two. It's the similarity of the first and the third cycles or sections. He's going to use the same legal language in Micah six, verse two. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. Well, let's go back to six, verse one. Hear what the Lord says. Aride, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Let's just stop right there. I'm not sure how you'd feel if you had been called into court to stand trial for crimes that you had done. Crimes worthy of a life sentence, but crimes that you thought were overlooked because the law has been paralyzed or because everybody else is doing it. You also made sure not to leave a trail, so there's no material evidence against you. So you thought for sure you had gotten away with it. But all of a sudden you hear there's an eyewitness who also happens to be the judge who also happens to be the prosecutor, whose eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth, beholding the evil and the good, and he has called you into his court. How would you feel at that point? So Micah is using this language to let Samaria and Jerusalem know you haven't gotten away with it. God is going to call you to an account in a legal fashion. He's going to make sure the law is administered, and he's going to make sure the charges against you stand. And so Micah writes, in order to bring God's lawsuit against his people. Go back to chapter 1. Here's the key theme. God's absolute consistency in judging sin. He will always judge sin. If God is just... And by the way, in our hearts, we want him to be just. Some of our frustration, some of our anger, some of our doubts against God is the question, are you really just? Are you really holding people responsible for their evil actions? And the answer is yes. And we're going to see that next week again in Habakkuk. But God's absolute consistency in judging sin and his unchanging commitment to bless those who repent. So if there's a proposition this morning, if there's a proposal that I'm calling you to respond to, it would be Jesus' words in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's take a close look at each section. I've just put the scriptures up there. I know it's smaller print, uh, but I want to give you I want to give you this idea where Micah moves between judgment and and hope, and you can write down those references. But the first section is this God, God's promise of judgment and deliverance. Go back to Micah chapter one. And we're going to be reading from verse two down to verse 
3. Actually, a little farther. Verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Why? Why is he doing this? Look at verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. That's why God is going to judge publicly and severely. And he's going to call out specific sins. He's going to call out first and foremost idolatry. And if God is just and if God is jealous and the scripture says he is, then he must respond in opposition to idolatry because it is in opposition to his character. Here's the judgment. Michael one, look at verse five. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, verse six, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pull I will pour down her stones into the valley and cover her foundations. Look at the specific sin. Now he's going to call out three times. He will mention it in verse seven. All her carved images. Idolatry shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute shall they, they shall return. Now what he's going to do next, if you look at verse 10, Micah will now systematically go through the cities. So when, he, so when his message is one of doom, okay, we would say this, God is coming down out of heaven to get you. Okay, that's like street idiom. And it's fearful. Okay, he's going to come down and he's going to tread upon the earth. And there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be fire and smoke. And when God treads, he does not tread lightly. And just to make sure these towns know that they have not been overlooked. Look at verse 10. Tell it not in Gath. In Bel Ephra. Okay, and he goes through verse 11. Shafir. Zanon, Beth Ezel, verse 12, Moroth, Jerusalem. It's, a, it's really a literary masterpiece what Micah is doing. He's an incredible writer. And it's lost in translation. Uh, this is a writing technique called paranomasia, where it's using a word in different senses or the use of a similar word to achieve a special effect. So when he's calling out these towns of Gath in Jerusalem, it would sound something like this to us as Micah is going through the cities. He would say something poetically like, you cannot wash the wickedness out of Washington. It's a play on words. Or evil is nothing new in New York. Or the color of sin is black in Colorado. 
And Micah is systematically going through city to town to city, poetically bringing their sins to the surface. Or as we would say, where we lived in uh, the capital of Kenya, in Nairobi, without even making that connection, we would simply call it Nairobbery because of its prevalent theft and crime. These cities are called out and now God will judge them. So let me, let me just address those here who puzzle over or struggle with the idea of God's wrath. If you go back to the theme, God is consistent in pouring out his wrath upon sin. And let me assure you on the testimony of passages like this that God's wrath is real. He not only has the capacity for wrath, but is committed to responding to sin in wrath. And that's why this, the beginning parts of each section are dark, filled with judgment and warning and doom. In chapter six, uh, in chapter two, sorry, verse six to 11, Micah calls out the injustice of Israel's rulers and their prophets. Look at chapter two, verse six. He says, do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You see, they're giving this is this is in Micah's time. This would be a health and wealth prosperity gospel. They're constantly saying there's no doom. There's no warning. There's no trouble. Don't worry. Don't preach like that. Doom is not going to overtake us. And here comes this rural preacher saying, oh, no. And if you look back in chapter one, this is what's happening uh, historically. The Assyrians are waiting at bay as part of God's divine instrument of judgment and they're going to move in and they're going to destroy Samaria and begin to move down and ravage Jerusalem after they leave a greater army will come in Babylon and Babylon will sweep in and bring even a greater destruction and march Israel off into exile think Daniel and so Micah is warning this but the health and wealth prosperity preachers are saying no there's no real threat there's no doom and the reason they're preaching those messages of what you will find out is they're being paid to preach what the people want to hear. Do not preach, thus they preach. Micah 2, verse 12. After the self-indulgent preaching, after the preachers are paid to overlook economic sins, Here's the first hope. Look at Micah chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. Go down to the last part of verse 13. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. Okay, so now let's just sink in. Over here you have the doom, the warning, and the judgment. Assyria is going to come, destroy. Babylon's going to come in, destroy, take you off into exile. It's going to happen because of your sins. God is going to come down. He's going to tread down on you. But I will again return and gather you. You will be scattered in judgment, but I will return again and gather you. And listen to the words of Jesus. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Why is that so important? It's what Pastor Matt said right at the beginning. There is hope for us because of judgment. 
because judgment was poured out upon Jesus Christ, because wrath was poured out upon the Son of God, there is hope for us. So he is the good shepherd who will gather because he lays down his life for the sheep. He goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. That brings us to the second cycle. God's judgment of rulers and promise of a just ruler. Let me just go through as I've gathered these things together and let me just go through some of the sins that Micah exposes. The social and economic sins he exposes are covetousness, theft, and fraud. Chapter 2, verse 2. Dishonest scales. Chapter 6, verse 11. Bribery. Chapter 3, verse 11. Deceit. Chapter 6, verse 12. Violence and bloodshed. Chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 10. But there are also religious sins. Witchcraft. Chapter 5, verse 12. Idolatry. Chapter 1, 5 to 7. And an unwillingness to heed the word of the Lord by paying for prophets who will tell them what they want to hear. Chapter 2, verse 6 and 11. But at its root, look at chapter 3, verse 2. At its root, he's calling out the leaders, the heads of Jacob, chapter 1, the rulers of the house of Israel. And he asks them this question in chapter 1. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil? Worship is always a matter of the heart. What you love and what you hate reveal what you are. What you love and what you hate reveal your heart. If you love the things God hates, that reveals to me your relationship with Yahweh. If you love the things the Lord loves and hate the things God hates, that reveals to me your heart. So before we rush into this, just contextually, ask yourself, what is it right now this morning as I came in here that I love and what is it that I hate? You just add those two things together. It's very simple math. It will equal who you are. And the, the leaders in Micah's day hated the good. Micah uses a brutal and offensive image to explain. It's not literal cannibalism, I do not believe, but how God sees the leader's treatment of the poor, of the oppressed, of the marginalized. Look at chapter 1, or chapter 3, and we'll keep reading in verse 2. You who hate the good and love the evil, okay, follow with me, middle part of chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse 2, and be alert to this. Look at the language he's using. Who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. So where is the judgment? The judgment is verse 4. These leaders, when the Assyrians move in, when the Babylonians move in, then they will cry to the Lord and what? He will not answer them. 
Sometimes God does not answer our prayers because of our unrepentant life. And that's probably not what you have heard most of your life. Oh, he's just saying, wait, he's just saying, maybe that may be true. But there are times when God will not hear your cry. Because of your persistent, unrepentant sin. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. He says this about the religious leaders in verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. But these religious leaders were called out by Jesus as well. Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in the people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. That is a shocking picture. Here they are in their robes. And they, they are masters, they are scholars of the Torah, of the law, and they're telling people what to do, and they're respected, and they're praying on the corners of the streets, and everybody is thinking in their workspace mentality, if anybody's getting to heaven, it's them. And along comes the good shepherd, and he says, woe to you, because you're not entering heaven, and you're leading people astray. Micah goes on to say this in chapter 3, verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion, that's Jerusalem, with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Sin, 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 evil, 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 no repentance, brothers. But isn't God here? Can't you just gag at that picture and how it repeated itself in Jesus' day and how it is happening in churches today? But remember this second cycle, short judgment, long hope. And there's hope. The second warning is followed by Jesus picking up the picture of this ransacked, destroyed temple in Jerusalem. But he says, Micah says, it won't be permanent. Israel will once again become the meeting place between earth and heaven. This is the promise. And this is an amazing promise because Assyria, Babylon, but... You're looking around at rubble. God's going to make this geographical location once again the meeting place between heaven and earth. Look at Micah chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days. By the way, Micah died. Micah never saw this realized. Faithfulness to the word of God, faithfulness to God does not always see in your lifetime the realizations of these hopes. But Micah says this, it shall come to pass in the latter days. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. 
And it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here's the hope for us. It's not just for Jews. It includes Gentiles. Zechariah, let me just read to you another passage and listen to this. And if you can picture, have you ever seen those pictures of Muslims just flowing towards Mecca? And on the prayer, they're all bowing down towards a God who is not Yahweh. They're, 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 they're impressive images. There is coming a day when people will flow in greater abundance to Jesus Christ. In Zechariah 8, he says this, thus, thus says the Lord of hosts. People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew you get the picture. You have one, one Jewish person and ten men from other nations are holding on to his robe, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's an amazing hope for a nation that's about to be destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And as we saw foreshadowed in Jonah last week, the category of this remnant will include Ninevites. So, folks, let's not hate God for his mercy shown to our enemies. God is doing a work that is amazing. And it's interesting who's going to corrupt this, if you would, this kind of a new, new Jerusalem. Or who's going to compose the new Jerusalem? It's not the corrupt and powerful. Look at chapter four, verse seven. Chapter four, verse seven says this. And the lame, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time and forevermore. So often, even in religious circles, it is the powerful and the wealthy, whether they have character or godliness or not, that are honored there's coming a day when a righteous ruler will come and he will pull out the lame and will pull out the weak and the oppressed and he will make of them a city. How will this happen? How, how is that even possible? In Luke 24, 44, again, Jesus said, everything written about me in the prophets must be fulfilled. How is that kind of a kingdom going to be established? How is that kind of a ruler going to come in and be able to, to sort through our poor discernment when we honor those who oppress other people? And we give preference to those simply because they have a lot of money or they have big positions. How can we trust that's going to happen? And that brings us to probably what is the most familiar verse in Micah, because this is the long hope section. Look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, five miles out of mighty Jerusalem, which means it's within reach 
to easily oppress them. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You see, they're overlooked. By way of a town, they're lame. They're poor. They're insignificant. They're overlooked. But from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. There is coming an eternal king. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they, will, they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Great hope. God will bring justice and remove evil from this world. Look at chapter 5, verse 15. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. That brings us to the final cycle. God's indictments and ultimate deliverance. Look at Micah chapter 6, verse 13. Here's the judgment. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. Why? Verse 16. You've been idolatrous. Right? You have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. But look at chapter 6, verse 4. Even amidst judgment, God is going to call them to remember something. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. I mean, I've shown you, I have redeemed you, I've rescued you, and yet you continue to sin. So Micah responds, look at Micah chapter 6, probably the, the second most familiar passage in this book. Micah is going to respond. So, okay, in light of that, in light of our idolatry and our sin and our unrepentant life, our economic, our social, our religious sin, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Okay, contrast that external ritual with this. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And those three things are exactly what Samaria and Jerusalem were not doing Listen to what Jesus had to say to the same, well, similar religious leaders. Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Now listen, if you can hear Micah's theme running through here, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. I mean, the tithing and the external rituals you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. So evil had so saturated these people that look at what they're doing. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. Young people, I want you to notice this. Okay, young people uh, looking in your text or just listening to me closely. This, this is when a society starts to crash. The son treats the father with contempt. The son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So, they will be destroyed. You can go back to Micah 6, 13-15. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. But remember, after warning after judgment, after doom, there's what? After darkness, there's what? In Micah, there's three cycles. After gloom and doom, there's hope. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. This is a godly person's response. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now remember one of the judgments in the second section. They will cry out to God, but he will not what? He will not, he will not answer them. Micah is convinced God will hear him. And as the book closes, Israel is personified as an individual in shame and defeat, sitting there, a clear image of Israel's destruction and exile. And this individual is watching for God's mercy, now has been humbled, has been brought, this remnant is brought back and gathered by a good shepherd and he's watching for God's mercy and he begs God to hear him and forgive. And here's the question. This is the big question for us this morning. Why should God forgive a faithless and rebellious person? Why? Okay, let's make it more personal. Why should God forgive you? Micah offers two reasons. I want you to see these. First of all, God's character. Look at chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. This is where Micah uses his own name, who is like Yahweh, and he poses this as a question. Here is why God can forgive a faithless and rebellious person. God's character. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. And passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob. And steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. 
The reason God can forgive faithless and rebellious people is because of His own character. His steadfast love overcomes the sentence due to our sin by faith. Secondly, why should God forgive a faithless and rebellious person God's promises? Look at verse 20. Micah says, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The final words in the book are an allusion back to God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. And because of his covenant promises to Abraham and those who are in the line of Abraham, there is hope. And you can almost hear what, what Paul said. Not all of those who are what? Basically from national Israel, national Abraham, are Abraham's children. Those who by faith have been grafted in, right, into that line, into that vine, so there is hope. Forgiveness is grounded in God's faithfulness to His promises. Now let me just draw out, in conclusion, three themes that form the heart of the Christian gospel. The supremacy of God the righteousness of God, and the mercy of God. Micah is all about the gospel. (laughs) Here's the first response. God wants his character to be known through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Listen to the confession that saves. Are you ready? You've heard this a lot, but I want you to hear this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is... Lord, there's lordship. Followers bow to a lord. Followers acknowledge he's a king. He's not just my buddy in sandals on the shores of Galilee who really overlooks my sin. That is not the biblical God. He is your Lord. And Paul warns in Philippians that one day everyone will bow and confess that. But your eternity depends on what you confess on this side of the grave. God wants his character to be known through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. Second, God wants his character to be known through the remembrance of his righteousness. Didn't I deliver you? Didn't I rescue you? Oh man, I have told you what is good to love justice and mercy To do what is right. Listen to Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest. It's been made known, right? This is what God wants to be remembered for. Well, how do we see it most clearly? Romans 3. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now listen to this part. This was to show God's righteousness so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then finally, our third response. God wants His character to be known through the demonstration of his mercy. Who is a God like you who pardons sin 
and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And folks, when you experience that kind of love, then you will love others. For if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. But if you've received this mercy, the way to demonstrate his mercy is he has told you, O human, what is good and what is right and what is required. Through divine intervention, the supremacy of God, God will bring about both judgment on sin and sinners. That's the righteousness of God and blessing on those who repent and believe. That's the mercy of God. Here's the message. God's absolute consistency in judging sin and his unchanging commitment to bless those who repent. Let's pray.